the book of Acts, chapter 15. And as you turn there, for those of you who are visitors or guests with us this evening, whether here or online, uh, we are in a series of messages in the evening dealing with the Westminster Confession of Faith. We arrive at chapter 31 of that Westminster Confession of Faith dealing with church consuls. I think it would be true to say, I think I could probably speak for Brother Mark and myself as well, in that this section of the Westminster Confession, there are parts of it that are rather perfunctory. It's not like, wow, isn't that great and a wonderful teaching? And yet what is great and wonderful is that which they based that confession on was the Word of God. And when you dig into the Word of God, you find such a glorious truth, such a great blessing. And I cannot think of the fact it's even more fitting when we come to this one, right? Who is inspired to hear a message about church, consuls, and synods? Yet it's in the Word of God. And the passage that is referred to the most often throughout this is this passage of Acts chapter 15. And apart from that, which we find in the Westminster Confession of Faith and all of its language, which is good stuff, it's the Word. It's the inclusion of this chapter in Scripture. And when we see the basis, when we see the reason for this, oh, what a blessing this is. What a glorious thing it is that God's word teaches us that yes, the church of Jesus Christ does include something wider, something bigger than just one's local congregation. And that there are situations and there are times that affect the whole of the church of Jesus Christ, that it is better off for a local church not to make a decision about a matter that might affect everyone and might affect the witness of the entire church. It is better to seek the wisdom of a larger body. And such we have in Acts chapter 15. We are going to begin reading, though, at chapter 14, verse Excuse me. We're going to begin reading. I've got to get the right reference here. Excuse me. Acts chapter 14, verse 24. That's where we're going to start. And then we're going to read through verse 5 of chapter 15. I would read the entire chapter, but I don't think my voice will hold up through it all. So, chapter 14, verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. 
And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And now he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers, to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we have read your breathed out word to us tonight. Yes, it's about an event that happened Many, many years ago. And yet, Father, the circumstances of this event, the way in which this problem was handled and settled, speaks volumes into our world and into our situation today. So may we hear your Spirit speak to us tonight with a clear message of how important it is that the church look beyond itself and seek the greater wisdom of the body of Christ so that he might be glorified and honored. In Christ's name, all God's people say, Amen. So we want to look at a couple of things from this passage, actually three things. One, the reason for a larger council. Why did they need to go down to Jerusalem and meet with others? What is the reason for it? Secondly, the result of that larger council. What actually happens there at that larger council? And we'll walk through some of the events that take place. And then thirdly, the realization of the Westminster Assembly. So first, the reason for a larger council. There is a cause of concern. Paul and Barnabas have been out on the mission field. They've been out on their mission trip. As they came, they preached the gospel. They preached the good news of the gospel. And many believed. 
They sincerely believed. They truly believed. These were not partial professions. These were not somewhat professions. These were people who heard the gospel, some for the very first time. Some had never heard the message of salvation. Some had never heard of Christ. Some had never heard of the cross. Some had no realization that they were sinners because you see, the emphasis falls on the Gentiles. Not the people of the Jewish synagogues, not the Jews who were converted to Christianity, but the Gentiles who are coming out of a world of paganism who on one day are perhaps sacrificing sacrifices to Diana and partying like crazy, and the next are hearing Paul, and they're going, I'm a sinner and I need Christ. And they're welcomed into the household of faith. As I've been mentioning to various groups over the course of the past couple of weeks since coming back to Germany, hearing the stories around that table at that conference of where people were, what they were involved in, and how they came to understand their own sinfulness, their own emptiness, and how much they needed Christ. All this Dutch boy from West Michigan could think of was, wow, you got a long way to go. But I'm thinking, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul faced. Right? They had been out on this missionary tour as they come back and report to the church at Antioch. This is what happened. Gentiles are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this a wonderful thing? But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Here's the cause of concern. Because Paul and Barnabas have been out there preaching the message of the gospel. People have been coming to Christ. They have been accepted into the churches that existed at that, those times. Now these men are saying, no, 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 no. These people cannot be accepted in as is. You can't just baptize them and bring them into the church. They need to be circumcised first. And unless they're circumcised according to the law of Moses... No going forward. That's the cause of concern. Which is it? Can someone, through the work of the Holy Spirit, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be included in the church? Or must they be circumcised in order to be a member of the church? Notice what happened. Paul and Barnabas 
had no small dissension and debate with them. And when it says no small, my guess is it got a little heated. My guess is the tone and the volume probably ramped up a little bit. And it wasn't just a short little exchange. Because the some men are insistent that it had to be circumcision. That's the only means of inclusion into the church. And Paul is saying, no, it's by believing in Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be included in the church. Which is it going to be? Nobody's willing to give. Paul's not willing to concede this point. Nor are those who are of the circumcision view. They're not willing to concede the point either. They've grown up with circumcision. This has been circumcision, circumcision, circumcision. How else? What? Another way? No way. They have to be circumcised in order to be a part of the church. You see, this wasn't just a local matter for the church of Antioch. Well, okay, we're in Antioch. We can make our own decisions. Some will we'll include those. Or that, that church over there in Ephesus, we'll, we'll let them. Or those churches in Galatia, we'll let them. But others over here, no, the, these people, they have to be circumcised. These don't. There's an understanding. This is beyond the local church level. This is not just an issue of which, well, some people can choose to do it one way, some people can choose to do it another way. Because for both of these groups, they see it as an essential part of what it means to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. This is no small matter. And they're not willing to say, ah, everybody can choose their own way. They realize that's not right. They realize that everybody going about this in their own way and each church doing their own thing is not the way to handle this situation. There needs to be a decision. But if we leave it up to Antioch, we pretty much know where this is going to go. Because Antioch hears Paul and Barnabas come back with this great mission report and they're like, yeah! Gentiles believing! You notice the church of Antioch does not raise the problem. It's not that somehow the elders in the church of Antioch are going, you know, Paul and Barnabas, you went out from us and we have a little bit of concern with your missionary techniques here. No, it's but some men, right, came down from Judea. Some people from somewhere else are coming in. So if the local church had made the decision, we know what it would have been. And because they understand this is a larger issue than just the church of Antioch. Notice what happens in verse 2. They have 
this dissension. They have this debate. And then it says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And I just want to emphasize the fact that they were appointed. They didn't say, hey, let's as a church go storm the church of Jerusalem and demand our way. Let's force our way into the church and let's just demand it be done our way. No, they appointed. They went about this in a reasonable way. Paul and Barnabas, you have a vested interest in this. We think you should go and represent this matter. The elders of our church who have supported you in this missionary endeavor, you should go along too. You men, be our representatives of the church and represent us there in Jerusalem. They were appointed. They did not take it upon themselves. They did not say, "Ah, I'm going to be the one to defend this. They were appointed to do so. That's the biblical way. That's the biblical way these things get handled. And you say, well, no, no, we're going to do it a different way. No, that's the mob mentality. The biblical way is, you're appointed. And these men were appointed to go. So that's the reason for a larger council. Now, what happens? Well, if we pick it up from that point, what we see happening is this. On their way to the council meeting, okay, here in Jerusalem, verse 3, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria. Guess what? Two other Gentile territories. And what are they doing? They're saying, hey, this is what happened on our missionary trip. And notice the reaction. Joy. There is rejoicing. There is joy wherever Paul and Barnabas go and report on what is happening amongst the Gentiles. End of verse 3. And brought great joy to all the brothers. Notice what happens in verse 4. They get to the council meeting and they give a report. Paul and Barnabas, you guys went out on a missionary trip. What happened? Well, okay. uh, They declared, verse 4, all that God had done with them. What does that mean? That means how Jew and Gentile alike came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They gave a report. What happens at this council meeting? Look at the next verse. But some believers... Doesn't say some unbelievers. Doesn't say some unfaithful folks. Doesn't say but some scoundrels. But some believers. Some who are part of the body of Christ. Some who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, in other words, they have a particular viewpoint. There is a particular viewpoint about the law. There is a particular viewpoint about the, how the law is to be used and how the law is to be applied. Most commentators will say that the group that's mentioned here are probably the same guys of verse 1. Because those of the Pharisee party are going to be those who are going to say no. As they do in this fifth verse, you have to be circumcised. So the debate happens again. We had the debate locally up in Antioch. Now we have the debate within the larger, broader church gathering. There are representatives here now. And they're debating this question. We have two views, two viewpoints as what is to happen. Third thing that takes place. One of the apostles, Peter, stands up and gives a passionate, passionate speech. Notice verse 7. And after there had been much debate, must have been an OPC general assembly, right? Because we, we, we debate a long time on some things, okay? After much debate, Peter stood up. And what does Peter do? Peter speaks about that which he has experienced. And he's speaking about the conversion and that the, the gospel, the conversion of Gentiles, and that the gospel is not a Jewish gospel. That the gospel is not veiled in Judaism. And that somehow Judaism is superior to the message of the gospel. And his point comes down, but we, we believe that we will be saved, verse 11, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That there's no saving effect of circumcision. That nobody is saved because they've been circumcised. Why are we making this a requirement? Why are we making this something of necessity? Why are we saying, why would we even contemplate Something that sets aside grace. Why would we put an obstacle in people's way? You got to think about this, folks, right? Circumcision is a pretty big obstacle. If you're an adult male and you're told the only way that you can be a member of the church is you need to have this surgery done on you physically... I really, I, that, in order to be a member of the church, my believing on Jesus Christ counts for nothing. The grace of God counts for nothing. But that surgery, you're insisting, is that which means I can now enter the church? What an obstacle. What an obstacle to grace. 
what an obstacle to church membership. So Peter gives his passionate speech. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. I want to emphasize the word all. Because that would mean the party of believers who believe in the insistence of circumcision. Peter stands up and delivers the truth. And it silences the voices of opposition. They listened. The words meaning that the assembly fell silent means there is nobody standing to object. There is nobody standing for a point of order. There is nobody standing for objection. They have heard Peter. And they are now silent. Verse 13. In the midst of the silence, James, perhaps one of the, outside of Peter, one of the most respected apostles that remains at this particular time. He is certainly one of the strongest in terms of... um, being influential in the church does something that I find to be so important. They're in the midst of this discussion. Peter has related his experience. But his experience alone, that by which we should make decisions. It doesn't discount it. It doesn't make that unimportant. James comes and says, that's what the Word says. That's what the Bible says. Well, for them it would have been the Scriptures. And we have this lengthy quote in verses 16 and 17, which comes to us from Amos chapter 9. He pulls out a prophet From the Old Testament, a prophet who prophesies in the midst of the decline of Israel, in the midst of the moral and spiritual cesspool that Israel has become, and he speaks about the fact, notice, not particularly to the point of circumcision, but all he says is, verse 17, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What James does is he goes back to the Word. And this is what a consult. This is what a senate, this is what a general assembly is supposed to do. It doesn't argue from doctrinal statements. It doesn't argue from Calvin. It doesn't argue from Luther. It goes back to the word. And it says, thus says the Lord. And that's what James does. He brings them back to the word. 
But he says, you see, the word of God tells us that the Gentiles are to be brought in. And God will make his name known among the Gentiles. What's his point? Why, why does he raise this? Why does he use this? Because what doesn't it say? It doesn't say, and the Gentiles will become good Jews. And then they will be my people. What it says is, they will call on my name and they will seek the Lord. End of argument. End of debate. There is nothing else to be said for the Lord has spoken. Gentiles, you see, do not need to become Jews in order to be part of the church. It is seeking and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. God said it way back in the Old Testament. Out of one of his faithful prophets. Ah, that word of the Lord. I think we would tend to read these and say, what's this got to do with it? Isn't somebody going to stand up and quote Genesis 17? No. Why? Because Genesis 17 was written to Abraham. This is speaking of Gentiles and of the Gentiles coming to glorify the Lord. So James makes a proposal, verses 19 through 21. The proposal is this, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble. That's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? <laughs> right? Not trouble. What's the trouble? Uh, getting a little surgery done. We should not trouble them. Right? My advice, my judgment. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Reason? For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. No circumcision. But the distinctives, that interestingly enough, most of them arise from the book of Leviticus. Live distinctively. Live a separate life. We should not trouble them about the circumcision issue, but we should trouble them about living a holy life as they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's after. We don't set the standard before. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles, to the elders, with the whole church, to appoint men to bring that message. 
See, imagine if this had just been left in Antioch. Imagine if all we had were these separate churches. And in Antioch, they make a decision. We're going to include Gentiles who don't have circumcision. Jerusalem makes the decision, we will exclude anyone who is not circumcised. What happens if a man who is a Gentile journeys from Antioch down to Jerusalem and they're at the Lord's Supper? What's the question? Are you circumcised? Because you can't participate of the Lord's Supper here, you see, unless you're circumcised. Because you can't really be a member of the church unless you're circumcised. So Jerusalem has one set of rules, Antioch has another. And we'd find throughout that world, churches on various sides of this issue. It was better, you see. It was better for them to say, let's meet, let's sit down, let's talk about this, let's debate this, let's discuss this, let's go back to the Word of God and let us come to a decision as to what is best. How do we know it's best? How do we know this was the best decision that they could have reached? Because we see it as it picks up in verse 22. So I invite you to go down to there. Okay? This seemed good. So what do they do? Okay? Verse 30. Excuse me. It's verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, They rejoiced because of its encouragement. See, they sent Paul and Barnabas down to this meeting not knowing for sure where things were going to go. They hold the meeting. The decision of the greater council brings rejoicing. Why is it rejoicing? Because it's an encouragement. But not only that. Continue to read. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. They're the two guys sent with the letter. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace. Do you remember how this whole thing started? It started with dissension. It started with debate. Where are we now? Peace. And after they spent some time, they sent them off in peace. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Know the next decision Peter and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas make? Let's go on another missionary trip. Let's go to more Gentiles. Let's bring the good news of the gospel even further. See, sometimes I think we think that when we lose, when when we take a decision from the local congregation above, 
that's only going to result in bad news. The example of Scripture is that's not true. The example of Scripture is when you bring things in an organized way. In this case, it resulted in a great blessing to the church. Because you see, not one of us, not one of us had to be circumcised in order to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Not one of us. And the Westminster Assembly sat down and they're dealing with the issues of the church. What exactly is the church? What are the sacraments of the church? What exactly okay, do we mean by baptism? What do we mean by the Lord's Supper? What, what do we understand by church discipline? I also said, you know, it's important that the church be allowed to meet in the broader assemblies. Now folks, understand they're writing this at a time in which mm, was it necessarily beneficial to speak about larger gatherings. But we think, based upon the word of God, that it is important for the church not just to look at itself locally, but see it in the broader context of the church of Jesus Christ. And so if you were to look up article or chapter 31 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you would find these four points being made. One, there is a need to be organized. It was a benefit, it was a blessing that there was a means by which this question could be decided. That it wasn't left scattered, but that the church could come together and they could make a decision. How are we going to proceed with the message of the gospel in this world? Secondly, the Westminster said, that's following the biblical example. We're not making this up. There are certain situations, there are certain times, there are certain problems that emerge that sometimes call for a broader assembly. Third, Sometimes they err. Sometimes the broader assembly isn't right. Sometimes it's wrong. We are all sinful men. And there are times when the decisions we make are impacted because we are sinful men. We do not make perfect decisions. We don't make perfect decisions within the session of little farms, within the eldership here. We don't make perfect decisions as the presbytery. We don't make perfect decisions as general assembly. 
They're prone to err. We don't endow them with the same authority as one finds in the Catholic Church. That there is no erring. That there is no mistake. That it's always perfect. That it's always holy. That it's always right. No, we acknowledge at times wrong decisions have been made. And we go back then with an open word, with an open Bible. And we say, thus says the Lord. And we seek to point out the error. We seek to point out the fault. And we seek to come back. And sometimes we have to redo decisions. Whether it's as a session, whether it's at a presbytery level, or whether it's at general assembly. And we confess our error. We acknowledge it. We were wrong. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that understands that. That understands that just because we met and made a decision, that decision can never be changed. I'm thankful to belong to a denomination that understands we make mistakes. Fourth, it also says that we as an assembly of the church have to be careful with what we make decisions about. Let me give you an example. It is not the right of the General Assembly or of the Presbytery of Michigan and Ontario to pass a rule against some particular aspect of the civil government. But it is our right and it is our responsibility to address it. See, that's the difference. No, it's not our right to make the laws of the commonwealth, of the nation. That's not what the church is to do. But we are to address it. And I am thankful that over the years, once again, we have been a part of a denomination that does not hesitate to do so. In 1973, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church said to our representatives and to our nation, the horror of abortion is evil and it is wrong. And it is sin. And it was willing to make that stand back in 1973 while many remained silent. Said nothing, did nothing. And like a steamroller, look where we are today. When the United States government made a decision that in their wisdom they thought it would be good for women to be in combat with men. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church, by humble petition, wrote the Secretary of Defense and said, Biblically, you are in error. That is wrong. The Bible teaches us this is not to happen. We have many times 
as a denomination by humble petition address the concerns and needs. Should we have done more? Probably. Should we have done less? Absolutely not. Why do I make a point of all of this? Because the Westminster Assembly goes back to Acts chapter 15 and says, here's our model. This is how we are to operate. This is how we are to conduct ourselves. You and I may look at that chapter of the Westminster Confession and as, as I somewhat am prone to do and go, oh man, i got to preach on this one. But when I come to Acts chapter 15, oh, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a blessing. What a blessing to proclaim the message of hope in Christ for a dying world. Amen? Amen.